Liability and Contribute to Negligence, Part 2. This is Wheel Life. Legal Reflections on Vulnerable Road Users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello, I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of the AC Beechcroft Solicitors. And in this episode, we continue to look at issues of finding fault and contributory negligence in claims involving vulnerable road users. Morning, Emily. <laughs> Morning, Caroline. How are you? I'm not too bad. How's the uh, cycling going now that the cold weather has passed? Oh, absolutely joyous today. It's a, a lovely day. I'm warm, um, I'm not wet, and I had the most beautiful cycle through spring. How about you? Um, ooh, not quite good. I was meant to go out yesterday, but it was 40 mile an hour winds and I decided that I wasn't going to do that. But um, I did cycle on Saturday to get some pastries uh, for the day, which was it's quite a nice ride to have pastries at the end of it. Good to hear it. Suddenly there's a bit of a turn in the weather. But today we're going to be looking at uh, some more issues of contributory negligence. Um, in part one, we looked at the fundamental structure of um, the uh, ways in which contributory negligence is dealt with. Um, and in this um, episode, we are going to look at some more examples. In particular, we're going to look at children. We're going to look at scooters. And because you promised it at the beginning of the last episode, horses. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, no, I think uh, those are three areas that uh, will will finish off this topic quite nicely. I hope so. So let's crack on. And the first case um, uh, that we're going to look at in terms of children, um, a couple of issues really with children, is about the um, extent to which children can be held to be liable or can be held to be responsible um, in the same way that adults can be. So in the case of Ellis and Kelly, uh, there was a, a sadly an eight-year-old child um, who used a playground um, close to his home um, and um, his carers used to let him go to and from the playground um, on his own without um, adult supervision. Um, and sadly, he had to cross a small road to do that. Um, and in the process of the crossing, uh, was struck by a car. Um, the child, perhaps not surprisingly, he ran across the road um, and also he crossed close to, but not actually on, uh, the zebra crossing. Um, and those are both factors that would um, influence a decision or a finding of liability if an adult was involved. Uh, but in this case, it was looked at through the paradigm of an eight-year-old child. So he went to the playground with his cousins, and it was a knowing, quiet area, uh, known to be residential, known to have a playground, and known to attract lots of children. Um, as I say, his mother had allowed him and his sister to go out on their own um, uh, with you know, certain boundaries about where they could go and what they could do, but part of that did involve crossing the road. Um, he went with his cousins to the skateboard park um, and um, he left the playground on his own uh, to go and um, join his cousin. Um, so he went across the road, uh, but he kind of crossed it, as you often do, he crossed it at an angle, just sort of before the crossing. Uh, he was running to catch up with his cousin and looked at the defendant's car, saw it, uh, but continued running. Uh, unfortunately, um, he misjudged the um, distance, uh, speed, etc., and was knocked down by the defendant and suffered a severe brain injury. 
the defendant accepted that uh, the car had been travelling too fast um, and accepted uh, primary liability. So the question before the court was entirely about uh, contributory negligence. Um, and again, as I say, it was argued that because he'd run out in the road when the car was close um, and essentially had come sort of between cars, there was an emergency situation caused by the actions of the child. And therefore, um, the driver was in a difficult situation um, and couldn't do much about it. And um, also, actually, interestingly, the driver sought contribution from the claimant's mother on the basis that uh, she'd allowed him to go out without proper supervision and, and when he wasn't really old enough to cross properly as evidenced by the fact of the road, um, or rather the fact of the collision. Um, the judge held that there was no hard and fast rule about the age at which a child could be found to be contributing negligence. There's no um, bottom line as there is in criminal liability, um, uh, following a very old um, case of 1966. Um, but you have to judge the action of the child, uh, but you do have to um, judge it by them being a child. So what could you reasonably expect of a child of the same age, intelligence and experience? So it is less than an adult standard, and the claimant's previous experience experience was that it was a safe place to cross the road. Uh, he knew the crossing was safe um, and he had previously had cars stop to let him go over the road. Uh, therefore, um, it was um, it, uh, reasonable of him to expect the defendant at this point to uh, stop and let him cross. Um, and he, 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 he had been right to infer that that would be what was likely to happen. So it would be difficult for a child to judge a stopping distance. And indeed, um, there's lots of evidence about um, young children actually lacking the visual um, maturity um, uh, and, and a cognitive maturity to have sufficient spatial awareness um, to judge speed. And it was reckless of the defendant. In terms of judging speed, I think adults have an issue with judging speed. I don't think it's necessarily um, an issue for children as well. So I can completely understand why that's one of the, one of the main issues with children. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. But I think I think there's actually um, a sort of physiological, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, not an expert, but I, I know that there's a physiological um, distinction about um, depth of field perception and, and visual space that makes it particularly hard, uh, certainly for young children to do so. Um, anyway, the, 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 the upshot was uh, that looking at all of this in the round, uh, there was no contributory negligence in the circumstances on the part of this child. It was all the driver's fault. Um, and indeed, it, there was no um, negligence on the part of the mother either she'd been she'd been reasonable in her uh, conduct she'd been reasonable in her um, uh, training so to speak of, of what she allowed the children to do they had sensible rules etc etc um, it would it's, it's not that it would be impossible to find contributory negligence uh, against a parent um, and the fact that she um, obviously now had a catastrophically injured child, wouldn't stand in the way of a finding of legal responsibility if appropriate, uh, but this was not um, such an appropriate case. Uh, so it would be entirely wrong to find the mother blameworthy. Uh, the boy had done nothing wrong. It all fell to the negligent driver. What we were just saying, obviously that's a case involving an eight-year-old, um, and I don't know... Um, if your, your experience of anybody looking to run any conneg arguments or a child less than eight, um, I know the next case we're going to go on to, the council involved in that case couldn't find any case law for anything for a child under eight years old. And that seems to be almost the rule of thumb age that people work with. I, I think that's right. I mean, I think it might actually be as much sort of practical that, that, that children under that, under that age tend not to be out on their own very much anyway. Um, but I mean, the sort of school bus cases, um, which are obviously... 
uh, an instance when children are often on their own coming home from school, uh, getting off the bus or walking that last distance on their own. Uh, it really doesn't seem to be much beyond sort of um, 10 or 11-ish that, that uh, uh, any realistic assessment of contributing negligence starts to arise in my experience. Yeah, well, that, that kind of feeds into the next case, um, which is um, a relatively new case. It's only from January of this year. Um, the matter of Sir Bua Gull and uh, James McDonough and the Motor Insurers Bureau. Um, positively pristine compared to some of the cases we've been looking at, I think. <laughs> it is. Well, as I said, this is this is new. And it, it, it is, um, it's an interesting case to read. Um, the claimant was a 13-year-old boy who was catastrophically injured when he was hit by uh, James McDonough. James McDonough her, um, was prosecuted and at the time of the accident, he was actually fleeing the police. So his driving wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> it was actually, it was it was more than reckless. Um, and primary liability was admitted um, by um well, judgment was entered against him because his insurers were standing back from that. Well, he was an insured, sorry, at the time, which is why the Motor Insurers Bureau was, were actually involved in the case. Um, judgment was entered against him for primary liability, but the Motor Insurers Bureau were arguing contributing negligence on the part of uh, Sabua Gull. This is it's it's a slightly unusual trial in that there was no um, oral evidence from any witnesses given. Um, obviously, the claimant, um, because of his catastrophic brain injury, did not give any um, evidence himself. The witnesses who were able to um, attest to the, to the to the noise of the car accelerating and the manner of the driving of the um, of James McDonough prior to the accident, none of them had actually witnessed the collision, um, so couldn't comment on what the claimant um, had or hadn't done at the time um, that he was approaching the road to cross. In addition, the accident reconstruction experts were also pretty much in agreement, so again, they didn't give oral evidence. So this was very much done on the paper arguments um, between the councils. And it was whether or not um, Sabua Gull could be found to be contributing negligence should he have crossed when he did. And this comes back to what we were just discussing in terms of being able to assess the speed. Um, he's 13 years old, so slightly more advanced than an eight-year-old, um, had walked this road regularly, so was expected to know where he was going. Um, there was an added element to it in terms of it was thought that he might have been wearing headphones at the time of the accident, but they couldn't actually confirm that. As I said, there was no witnesses to the accident. They found some headphones nearby. They think he was wearing them. And what's interesting is if you look this case up on Lawtel, the point that's been taken out of it is in relation to the headphones and whether or not it was negligent um, for him to be wearing them. It wasn't actually argued that it was negligent in wearing headphones, but um, as the... Um, Sorry, as his honour, Judge Gargan um, rightly said in the, um, in the judgment, um, a random glance around a group of pedestrians on any street shows that a considerable portion of the younger pedestrians and some older ones um, are wearing headphones. However, when a person who is wearing headphones attempts to cross a road, it becomes more important for them to take a careful look at the traffic because they cannot rely upon their hearing to warn them of danger. So just wearing headphones alone is not enough to show that somebody's negligently crossed a road. You've got to show that they have actually been distracted by the use of those headphones and haven't been paying attention. I think that is quite interesting, actually, because 
we often hear people saying, oh, you know, they are negligent because they're wearing headphones. Um, but, I mean, there's several things, actually. Firstly, um, uh, the concept of noise um, and, and, and road traffic is really, really altered, not just on the part of... Um, uh, pedestrians and, and and as you rightly say, I mean, so many people either have headphones in or headphones on, or are talking on the phone or are looking at their phone, um, that you really can't, as a road user, be confident that sound will alert people to their presence. But also, um, conversely, there are now quite a lot of silent vehicles, and mm-hmm. I mean, I think we've probably all been caught out as well by the um, um, a suddenly the kind of whoosh of a silent electric vehicle. Um, so you can't. I mean, lots of people. People rely on sound either to alert them, alert pedestrians as to presence, or pedestrians cross the road by listening for vehicles. And actually, um, as you say, attention has to be given to what you're doing. Wearing headphones isn't enough to make you contributory negligent. Um, it, you've got to be alert to your surroundings. But that also means uh, looking out for things that are silent, as well as um, uh, expecting uh, those that are making a noise expect to be heard. In terms of the electric car issue, um, I haven't got the data in front of me, um, and we can talk about it if we do autonomous vehicles again, is that any vehicles being made in the future have to have ambient noise um, projecting out. So, uh, because most car electric cars, if they're less than 10 miles an hour, aren't making any sound at all. And that's when incidents tend to happen when they're parking and people step out because they, they're not aware of them. So moving forwards, they've got to project a noise so people can actually know that there's a car parking, as you just said. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realise that. So, OK, so we may we may still be able to cross the road by listening. <laughs> but well, that, um, that, yeah, as that, other road users have to be aware that people might be wearing their headphones, they might not be listening very well. Well, that's the that's as you as you said there um, and as it was found in, found in this case it was more careful than to take a, a, a careful look at traffic if you're wearing headphones um, and you've got to be aware of things coming you can't just rely on the noise and obviously one of the elements in this case was um, that the witnesses had flagged up was screech of the car um, turning corners and accelerating up at speed uh, and had had he had his headphones in um, you, you just need to pay more attention to what you're listening to um, but coming up to the pavement what um, it was found in this case that a reasonably careful 13-year-old would and should have waited for the focus to pass. Further, even if they did set off across the road, um, it was reasonable that a 13-year-old, realising that the car was travelling unusually quickly towards them, would would then which would and should have kept his eye on it as he crossed the road. So it's that element of once you start crossing road, if you look and you see a vehicle coming towards you, um, and it starts moving a bit quicker than uh, you maybe thought when you started. You you need to speed up to get across the road. So if you are crossing the road, making sure that you're keep, you're continuing to keep um, checking for cars coming towards you and from both directions, especially if it's a wider road. Um, and that's something that a 13 year old was assessed as being more than capable of being able to do. Um, however, the, in this case. The um, the first defendant um, driving in this case was described as partic- particularly egregious. His speed was excessive. The risk of injury was obvious, and his motivation the des- the, was the desire to avoid arrest. Um, insofar as the claimant could see the defendant, so too the defendant could see the claimant and could and should have slowed down. It would not have taken much adjustment on the part on his part to allow the claimant to complete that final 30 centimeters to across the road. The causative potency, which obviously we discussed last time, of all these factors was extremely high and must weigh heavily against the first defendant. However, 
even though the defendant's um, conduct was so extreme, it was argued that even if the claimant's conduct was culpable, the first defendant's conduct was so extreme that it wasn't just inequitable for any reduction to be made. However, it was found that whilst the court had every sympathy for the claimant, um, it did find that on balance, it was just inequitable to reduce by 10% for his failure to potentially look and assess at the speed of the forward focus as it was pressing down on him so he shouldn't have stepped out in the first place. Or had he assessed it, stepped out and then realised it was coming quicker, that he should have sped up to get across the road that bit quicker. But that was only 10% reduction. I think it's interesting that 10% is... um... Uh, really a very small degree of contributory negligence. So uh, 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 as you rightly note, the the judge is almost giving a sort of small slap on the wrist rather than uh, making any um, sort of significant uh, reduction. Um, But it it is interesting, um, uh, that that element of of trying to balance it all out. Um, And and particularly, um, as you said, when it's only 30 centimetres involved, I mean, that's the size of a ruler. Uh, It's a very very fine line. Um, But... um, I uh, think it comes... I was just going to say, Emily, I think that comes down to the fact that um, the 10% and why it was a small amount was, as we said, there's no independent witnesses um, that are able to comment on what what the claimant actually did. The claimant wasn't able to give um, any evidence either. It very much was, as I said slightly earlier, it was very much run on the papers um, and what a 13-year-old would be expected to have done rather than necessarily what this claimant did. Yeah, no, no, I I get that. Um, And and I suppose the other, as as you said before, the other big sort of takeaway is uh, it is the notion of paying attention rather than the reason for which you're not. So the the headphones in themselves are, are simply indicative of care or not care rather than per se being uh, evidence of, of, of negligence. And I think if you look at it as well, if we go back to the first case that you talked about, if you're a driver and you're driving next to a playground or anywhere where or a school or anywhere kids could be running out, you straight away should be adjusting your driving because we know children run out between cars. We know that these things happen as drivers and as just parents of whatever else. You know that these these are the situations where you have to be paying more attention. Um, and I think um, for my own perspective as a cyclist behind somebody with headphones but also a driver if you see somebody with headphones coming up to the side of the road there's a part of me that almost covers the brake or covers my brakes on my bike now because you don't know where whether people will step out i think it's very difficult sometimes to judge people wearing headphones yeah no i, I think that's right and um um obviously children are are particularly vulnerable and um there's uh, sort of moves towards having uh, roads closed or, or roads monitored when their schools are kind of coming in and out to reflect that sort of fact and lots of kind of um, local speed limits of 20 miles an hour around playgrounds and so on and so forth so as you say as a driver that's something you need to be aware of Uh, so it's really just back to as we always say being alert looking around paying full attention to what you're doing um, and, and, and doing your best. Yeah, whether or not you're a pedestrian, if you're a pedestrian walking around with headphones on, um, you've taken away one of your senses so you need to be really looking out for things. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. And um, looking out for things is kind of what didn't happen in the next case we we're going to look at, the scooter case of Kiriko and Finch. Um, in that case, um, it's a sort of classic scooter being shielded by a van scenario. So uh, the claimant was riding a scooter down a single carriageway 
towards an intersection and um, at that point, which one might think was a bit foolish in the first place, decided to overtake an Asda van. Um, I don't know the exact dimensions, but but that, I would imagine that's some sort of boxed van, certainly something that um, is going to be at least partially shielding of the smaller scooter. And the scooter was going over 50 miles an hour. So already we can perhaps see that um, uh, there's some sort of disaster waiting to unfold. Uh, speedy little scooter overtaking large van at an intersection. And lo and behold, exactly what um, you might expect happened. The defendant car travelling in the other direction, going very slowly actually, around sort of 14, 15 miles an hour, executed a right turn at the intersection and, funnily enough, collided with the scooter. Um, I mean, again, I'm not meaning that flippantly. The scooter driver was seriously injured. And as we've said often before, you know, these cases are always born out of disaster. Um, but the defendant's evidence was um, that they hadn't seen the scooter until after the accident. Um, as he approached the junction, he looked ahead and he saw the Asda van um, and that if he'd seen the claimant's headlights, i.e. the scooter's headlights coming towards him, he wouldn't have turned. Um, having chosen to turn in front of the van, um, you know, that, that, that was obviously a point that would be called into question. Um, but the driver did accept that he had cut a corner in turning. So it obviously sort of um, uh, pulled around in front of the van and, and cut the corner in, in doing so. Um, so that was the sort of uh, uh, setup, really, for, for examining liability or contributory negligence. Um, oddly, there was CCTV evidence um, um, of, of the junction and, and therefore of the collision, which is something we very often lack. Um, but that plus a joint expert report um, showed the scooter had its headlights on. So um, uh, the defendant saying that, it, you know, had the, had the scooter been there to be seen, he, he would have seen it and stopped. Um, it, it suggested it did have its headlights on, but it was travelling very fast at around 55 miles an hour. And there was also a question around drugs. There was um, some cocaine found, um, perhaps cannabis um, on the part of the scooter driver, uh, whether they were suffering um, under the influence or so driving under the influence of drugs. Um, unable to, um, uh, no, sorry, actually not unable, chose not to give evidence, and that's quite important. The, 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 the claimant chose not to give evidence um, on their behalf um, uh, uh, and failed to give ev ev any evidence about what they might or might not have been doing. Um, but toxicology evidence showed that there might have been influence of cannabis and cocaine, and as I say, there was some found on the part of the um, claimant uh, driver who also turned out not to be licensed to drive the scooter. Uh, so there's all sorts of problems. <laughs> He's got on everything there, going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He would question um, what kind of witness he would make. Well, obviously, someone took the decision, not a very good one, <laughs> since uh, either on his own behalf or on his uh, on his representative's behalf, he chose not to give evidence. Uh, but there we are. So the experts agreed that the scooter was overtaking the van, and that at that point the headlights would have been visible to the defendant. Um, and so there was obviously a miss on the part of the defendant for not having seen the van. Um, but if the scooter had been travelling more slowly, and I always wonder how they can you know, do it to a nicety, but anyway, from 55, if it had been travelling some 10 miles or so less at 37, um, the collision would have been avoided. Um, and so um, speed w w must have been a factor because the collision could have been completely avoided. Uh, but if the defendant had been looking ahead before commencing the turn, he also should have seen a scooter. So here we've got some sort of classic evidence of, of um, um, a falling below standards on everybody's part. So when it came to determining liability, um, the court looked at three issues. 
So firstly, how long the claimant had been visible for um, in the run-up to the accident, so for how long the defendant should have been able to see the scooter. Uh, secondly, uh, whether the issue of looming was relevant, so sort of looming past the van, um, uh, and the nature, thirdly, of the cornering manoeuvre. So we, we know the defendant cut the corner uh, to, to effect the turn, so the, effect, the extent to which that was a, a, a cornering manoeuvre of note. So the looming threshold, I like that concept, um, was the distance <laughs> at which it was possible to judge the speed of the approaching vehicle. Um, so the defendant's expert said that it was important because although the claimant had been uh, visible, because we have to accept there was the headlights, uh, the defendant wouldn't have been able to uh, perceive him as a risk um, because you, what we've got, is, if you think about it, is the scooter overtaking the Asda van um, towards the middle of the road, coming towards the um, vehicle um, of the defendant driver. So what, by looming, you've got somebody driving towards you, so the sort of distance is foreshortening all the time. Um, and then that's quite difficult to tell speed to a nicety, as the court often likes to say, so the distinction between 37 miles an hour and 55 miles an hour can be hard. I mean, I suppose the kind of answer to that would be, well, if it's hard, you shouldn't turn. <laughs> yeah, and you definitely shouldn't be cutting corners. <laughs> well, yeah, I think one has to concede you shouldn't be cutting corners. Um, but, um, you know, if, if, if you are looming, if you have got a difficulty of telling whether you're going to have enough space, the safe answer is uh, you haven't got enough space. <laughs> so um, anyway... Um, there we are. The defendant submitted that the overall cause of the accident was the claimant's negligent driving uh, and, and uh, you know, effectively going for the no liability at all. If you remember when we spoke on the last occasion, um, we only get into the realm of contributory negligence if you've got negligence, obviously. Uh, so the claimant has to prove liability in the first place. So unlike the other cases we've looked at where liability was a uh, given and we were only looking at whether there was a reduction, here we've got a fight on about whether there's liability at all. So the, 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 the claimant scooter driving fast um, under the influence of drugs, overtaking a van, is that enough to negate liability in the first place? Um, and um, then obviously uh, at a punt, if we are going to get liability, says the defendant, uh, it should be reduced. Um, so make us no more than 10%, going back to where we were before, 85 or 95, 90% liable by the claimant. The claimant, on the other hand, said um, that definitely there was liability uh, and primary liability was um, absolutely established, but accepted that uh, he might have been up to two thirds to blame. So a reduction of 66%. Um, and that was the basis um, on which the court um, made their consideration, wasn't it, Caroline? Yeah. Um, well, the, the court found primary liability did attach. Um, they found that the defendant had been negligent in two respects. First, he'd failed to keep a proper, proper lookout and had failed to see the scooter. Going back to what you were saying, he was, it was, uh, the line of sight was for three, he was in the defendant's line of sight for three seconds. So, and he failed to see him. So he was negligent there. And, and then secondly, he um, had cut the corner, um, which was negligent in itself. Um, if it, if it not been for those two breaches, so not keeping a proper lookout and cutting the corner, then the accident wouldn't have occurred. So there was negligence on the defendant's behalf. However, they then looked at contributing negligence on the part of the claimant. Um, and this was a case, obviously going back to the causative potency point, where it was found that, yes, the defendant had cut a corner and failed to keep the sufficient lookout, but the claimant had been driving at twice the speed limit. 
executing an inherently dangerous manoeuvre, i.e. he was overtaking the van. And that was compounded by the fact that he was overtaking at an intersection. So as a result, if you put those two things in the scales, um, it was the, the claimant that was found to be more to blame. Um, also, they took into account moral blameworthiness and the claimant had taken a substantial risk undertaking the manoeuvre that he did. Whilst the defendant had taken some risks, it was not to the same magnitude. Um, the defendant's failures were momentary, whereas the claimant's failings were over a longer period, obviously driving at twice the speed limit, um, overtaking a vehicle and deciding to do so at an intersection. Considering all of those facts, a huge proportion of the culpability lay with the claimant, but the defendant did bear some responsibility, as we just said, from having the primary um, liability finding. Um, the claimant's damages reduced by 80%. So the claimant was found to um, only receive 20% of his damages as a result. Um, and I think that's probably quite a, um, a good reflection of... Um, a significant con neg, but how a defendant they were to blame they did they did do something wrong yeah i think it's interesting as well that um uh the the, the judge weighed up the length of time or, or the kind of um, extent of negligence so um of course turning right across a junction into the intersection is always going to be risky and so by doing that um when the scooter was there to be seen, uh, and and just you know not being able to tell the 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 the, the speed. Really, the only thing to have, have been done would have been to wait. By choosing to kind of nip across and cut the corner, you're immediately putting yourself into the realms of culpability. But by weighing that up, I mean I think moral is an interesting word. But by weighing that up against the length of time, the 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 extent of the egregious behaviour, borrowing that from the case before because it's such a great word, um, um, the uh, egregious behaviour of the scooter overtaking the van and, and also the, was found um, held on balance to have some uh, cannabis in his system. Um, yeah, you, you get you get the one outweighs, almost outweighs the other. Well, my one case that I have gone to the Court of Appeal on was a, we were a police car turning right across a road with a car coming in the opposite direction who was going, twi- well, over twice the speed limit Um but this is a car versus a scooter. But other than going twice the speed limit, um, he didn't. He what they weren't overtaking or an intersection. But that went 50-50 on that one, um, and that was very much as turning right across the path, and we didn't see him. But he was going. I think it was 65 or 70 and a 30, um, trying to get home past his curfew, seemingly. And wow. yeah, that was a 50 That was a 50-50. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, so there we are. Um, and I suppose that goes back to what we were saying before that while we can go through the cases um, all day long um, and as we have done and tried to pull out some of the factors they will always turn on their facts and um, careful analysis is required um, but um, careful analysis will um, you know will 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 lead to a balance and and, and will lead to results and then the final case because um, Caroline did promise horses were vulnerable road users <laughs> Um, we have a horse case, um, but but you were talking, Caroline, interestingly about uh, the three brain concept of the horses. So, so tell us a little bit about that before I tell you about the case. Oh, I mentioned it in the in one of the previous episodes, looking at um, 
putting together the highway code uh, consultation response last year. And one of the points that they raised in their document was that if you were overtaking a horse, there are three brains involved in that um, manoeuvre. So you've got the brain of the driver, you've got the brain of the horse rider, but you've also got the brain of the horse. So you're not over, you're, when you're overtaking the two brains, as such, you are, you've got to think what will the person on the back of the horse do, but also what will the horse do? And as we all know, horses in traffic can get spooked. So that's where the three brains or the two brains, you're overtaking two brains rather than overtaking just the one. That reminds me of that sort of children's rhyme about um, uh, two legs sitting on three legs, holding one leg, chases four legs or whatever. But uh, let's save that for another time um, and move on to the case. Um, I've got of Devro and Hayward, uh, which uh, isn't isn't as uh, 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 newly minted as, as some of the other ones we've looked at today, but is, as promised, a horse. Um, so, um, again, as always, a, a tragedy ensued in that poor horse rider, Miss Devereux, ended up with um, significant head injuries. Um, and uh, they arose because uh, she was riding with her husband. They were keen um, and confident riders out on a country road. Um, and they came across the defendant, um, Mr. Hayward, riding his motorbike. Um, and he, he was riding a motorbike with a pillion passenger. It was a um, country road, um, as I say, relatively quiet. Um, and as they came round a bend, uh, the claimant and um, her husband, they were riding their horses side by side. They came round the bend and there was the motorbike. They were confronted by the motorbike. Um, the There was a dispute of fact um, as to what happened next. The upshot was the horse bolted and um, the rider fell off, as I say, and and suffered uh, significant injuries. The um, motorbike ended up pulling towards the left, um, so the inside of the road, its left-hand side, and coming to a halt without either falling over or either the motorcyclist or pillion passenger being injured or indeed um, uh, coming off the bike. How they got there was in dispute. Um, the uh, the judge held, um, and therefore the facts are found to be, uh, that as the um, bike came round the corner, the rider of the bike realised that he obviously was confronting a horse, so he dropped the gear, which made the made the engine much less noisy. It reduced the rev sound, the intention being so as not to startle the horse. Uh, however, he didn't at the same time break. Um, he moved towards the left-hand side but didn't break. So from the horse's point of view, uh, the horse was confronted by a vehicle coming towards it at some speed. But there was a dispute in that the um, um, the horse started to turn towards the bike. The, the motorcyclist said the horse reared and, and came at him. Uh, the rider said that the horse turned towards and, and, and bolted because um, it was uh, confronted by, by the bike. And that was what the court held, that it was the fault of the motorbike uh, because uh, it didn't uh, slow down in particular and it didn't turn to get away from the horse. It just carried on coming towards the horse at the same speed um, and that the, the, the noise may have reduced but that wasn't enough. 
There was no evidence that the horse itself was particularly skittish or difficult or, or nervy uh, beyond that of a normal animal. Um, so there was no suggestion, um, as had been run by the defence, that the claimant should have dismounted in the time available to her or somehow signalled to the motorcyclist that the horse was um, difficult or, or, or particularly traffic shy. Um, and in fact, the evidence was that it wasn't. It was um, a, a perfectly roadworthy horse that was used to uh, riding with traffic both beside it and around it, um, and that there had never been, um, uh, there was no concern about its um, uh, safety in, in, in such instances. However, unfortunately, um, you know, horses are known to, to be troubled by things coming upon them. And I think it very much goes back to what you were saying, Caroline, about it having a brain of its own and, and, and try as you might. It had a response, and its response was one of fear. And its response to fear was to bolt. And unfortunately, that is what happened. Um, uh, as a result, uh, a, a normal, perfectly competent rider was uh, um, dislodged and, and suffered serious injury. So in that instance, actually, uh, what it is a horse, it's not a contributory negligence case because uh, there was an argument of contributory negligence, but it failed. So um, It's a vulnerable uh, road user case, though. And it, it, well, to be honest, it's a vulnerable road user and a vulnerable road user. It's a motorcyclist and a horse. There you go. Double your money. No, definitely. Um, 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 and, um, uh, and of course, there was an argument of contributory negligence, but it failed. So um, that's an instance of, of, again, looking at the situation, looking at the circumstances um, and uh, remembering um, that uh, you, with a horse and an animal, you've got um, to take in, into, into consideration their own particular response to the world around them. Yeah. And well, that, the motorcyclist obviously knew he had to do something, but he didn't do enough. That's true. Yes, that's absolutely true. Well, I, that's another um, podcast completed. Dare I say a canter through contributing negligence? Can I go that far? <laughs> of course you can. Um, and uh, as, as other cases pop up, if anything comes up, we can uh, talk about it another time. But uh, I think we did... We did motorbikes, horses, scooters, pedestrians, children, and horses. I think we've. I think we've, that's a smorgasbord of contributing negligence, and probably more than enough for anyone. So let's end now and uh, talk about something else next time. <laughs> Speak to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks as ever. Bye, Caroline. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barristers Chambers, Thirty Nine Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeachcroft.com and 39essex.com.